Welcome, everybody, to another edition of After Further Review with Mark Ferreira and John Pelkey, Jeff Taylor, our producer on the board. Welcome to 1972 Part 2 of a three-part series, Johnny. And this is, big year. Uh, big it year. is a big year. And there's all kinds of amazing sports stories as well. But especially this part, and you can probably yeah. imagine why, there's a lot of non-sports stories yeah. in the months between May and August. 72, and, right? You sent me that timeline stuff of things that we might be talking about, and I was looking at some of that stuff as well, and, and you're absolutely right. It was uh, it was a crazy time. We should point out that uh, the song that opens this, Rocks Off by the Rolling Stones, which always have, and by the way, boys, I'm glad we all got the black shirt memo, uh, it is uh, an album from 1972. So, indeed it uh, is. I don't know if uh, perhaps in the future, when we do these future deep dives, maybe we're going to have to uh, theme some you know, six seconds worth of music. So we don't have to pay the ASCAP royalties. I do love that idea. I do love that idea. I think uh, our outro, keep the customer satisfied. Clearly not 72 was 1970, but uh, perhaps, uh, you know, perhaps I can think this through a little bit later next time, John, perhaps next week for part three, I can actually think this through a little bit. <laughs> you and I think something and not through. just be so I'm going to hold my breath. Yeah. You and I said, we're not going right. to actually, through. actually put true effort into something. I'll tell you, though, uh, it's it's a lot of fun. You mentioned last week because I, what, what I said about the theme of this year is yeah. that it it's a year of firsts. Right. And we certainly experienced that in part one with January through April. Lots of firsts going on. But there's a ton of firsts as well in the, the next third of the year between May and August. And you were saying last week that this is the year you sort of came online in terms of a sports fan. So it, it really has a synergistic feel to you. And I, I'm, I'm happy I picked that year so so that you're well, somewhat engaged in this show with me. Otherwise, I, you know. Right, right. I don't really – I'm not even aware that you're doing anything, quite frankly. Exactly. Uh, but, uh, exactly. No, I, it, it was. I was. I turned eight that July, and, and we've talked about this before. Six, seven, eight, nine, you're somewhere in that range normally when you start uh, – becoming a sport at least at least when we were kids now that they kids can see so many sports on television all the time i think maybe it comes a little bit earlier and you had to be eight years old to play boys club football so that was that fall was the first year that i played boys club football as i mentioned uh, my first year playing organized football we won a championship only one i won uh, my, my entire career through high school and uh, my best friend steve Carricker, who listens to the show uh from time to time he, does. he played football at the university of virginia um, he reminded me of a story, uh, a horrifying story of 1972 that he's damning you, Mark. Uh, he's in a text. He's damn Mark Ferreira uh, for choosing this year because he said he put it out of his mind. And uh, it happened around happened on Halloween. So we'll wait until the third. That'll edition. be part I'm three. Just, right. I'm 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 uh, you know, I'm giving people a little little look forward and teasing that a horrifying story, which actually ties into this year's Super Bowl as well. Um, so, yeah, very well, interesting I, that way. That'll, that'll come I, around. But it's not uh, the first time someone has says has said, damn you, Mark Ferrer. So no. I'm glad that someone I don't know is starting to say that. That means right, something. Right. So words out. Kind of a, so that yeah. means, you know, obviously. <laughs> true. Word is out. In some you don't way, even have to know me, and you right. know, you know, yeah, right. Normally, no, normally it's like that whole thing about why do people hate anybody just because of their race or their religion? You know, get to know them. You'll find better reasons to, to hate them. But people are finding reasons to hate you, not even knowing you very well. So we're we're getting things I know that out there. Pleases but, you, 
It, it does in every way. But uh, it was a good year to pick uh, the sports. Like I said, I remembered Super Bowl six, but my team was in Super Bowl seven coming up in January of 73, the 72 season. I had uh, I had just met uh, or was just about to meet Catfish Hunter. I did somewhere around that time. Obviously, the A's in 72. We're going to start to get into that a little bit. Uh, we are. Remarkable statistic that you gave me uh, concerning the All-Star game and Major How League about Baseball. that, Johnny? Crazy. We'll get into that. that a couple of different things, but uh, looking forward to it. Absolutely crazy. So let's before get into we it right do, now. Though, before Oops. we do, though, I did want to say, because we talked about this before, was that we, we, we can touch on things that are happening in the world of sports right now, and I just have to get your opinion of Russell Wilson coming out and criticizing the Seattle Seahawks Somebody chimed in today on on uh, on the Twitter or the Book of Face or one of those things about wow NFL players starting to take a take a little bit of a hint from the NBA and realizing that you know the stars may have a little bit more power than uh, than they think. But I found it very interesting. Someone would come out and say, "I'm targeting," and I would like involved in. Uh, the Purcell decisions of the team. It's going to be interesting to see that going forward. I didn't mean to, to shorten your show, Mark, but I just no, but thought I, that I was something like worth that. touching and, on. And that's, and that's worthy to touch on because, to your point, it's been slow coming. Really, the only time that's happened, really, in the world of sports on on some, on a real level is this year with Tom Brady. Bringing right. in Gronk, bringing in Fournette, bringing in A.B. I mean, he's the one that did it. This coach didn't even want some of those players in there. And, yeah. and he did that. And Colin Cowherd who, uh, let's face it, we love, uh, made the great point, and actually it was Nick Wright, believe it or not, made on his not, show. I know, not not like Colin Coward in your I turned mind. on him a little bit. He had a show the other day on Collins, and I stayed with it, and, and it was better than I expected. He, he's pretty good. He's pretty well thought out. He, he prepares very, very well. Uh, but at any rate, he said that Tom Brady is the system, that the only two players that are like that in sports today, for the most part, are LeBron James Hmm. and Tom Brady. So it's not that they are, uh, they have success because of the system they're playing in, which of course was the big knock against Tom Brady for 20 years. Oh, it's a system. Matt Castle got 11 wins. (laughs) You know, and no, he's the system. He's the system. And for the first time, go ahead. Uh, well, I was going to say, I, I want to say, you know, who the guy I think is the uh, is the is the grandfather of all this stuff, the godfather of it, whichever you want to say, was Reggie White. Because if you remember when Reggie White uh, left Philadelphia and was the the big free agent and for whatever reason, he didn't want to stay in Philadelphia any longer and he chose to go to Green Bay. They will tell you, and I think maybe the, the late Ted Templeman might have been the G- GM there at the time, but that that he was then able to be a recruiting guy to bring in some other free agents in Green Bay. And really, as much as Brett Favre, he is responsible um, probably equally to Favre for uh, for what became of the Green Bay Packers, you know, to, as, as we pointed, the year we're talking about, 1972, was the final year that the Packers were in the playoffs until the Brett Favre era, which was a long time, 20 years of being, you know, just almost 20 years of being nothing. Um, so uh, I, I think uh, we got to give Reggie a little bit of credit there, but I think what you're going to see with the Deshaun Watsons of the world, Mark, um, is that these guys are going to realize that, you know what, we don't have to toil in obscurity. We can actually yeah. put pressure on these organizations, and uh, you know we're the face of the league now. The quarter they've made quarterbacks the huge face of the league now. 
Well, and, uh, and I agree. And, and it's and they're realizing the, the power they have. And yes, Reggie White, that's a that's a great grandfather, sort of the precursor, sort of the Robert Johnson of this. Not necessarily the Elvis Presley. That's more LeBron right. James. But uh, but the fact that they now it's not just they don't have to be a free agent now. They can right. just say, I don't want to be on this team or I want more control about who plays on this team. And uh, and I frankly, I embrace it. I embrace it because it's just the, the more equal that the market can be. I'm employing conservative tactics right now. The more equal a entity is that's protected by antitrust. So right off the bat, it's not really capitalistic. It's 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 an abuse of the capitalistic system within it. If the free market can dictate yeah. what's happening, because what other what other industry, if you're an excellent performer, do you not have the ability to do whatever you want, to go right. wherever you want, to make the calls if you want, to 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 demand a certain salary if you want? I, and I, I think, think I think everyone should embrace this because it's really the American way. And I think it it because uh, what we saw with the NBA was the Donald Sterlings of the world. And this actually quote goes back to um, gosh, I, I believe it's it's uh, Connie Mack who said it uh, back in the you know early part of the 20th century that it was more profitable for him to have a team that actually and this is in a time where you only had, you know, National League pennant, American League pennant, but a team that challenged all the way up towards the end of the season and then finished second or third because he didn't have to you any of the expenses on a postseason didn't have to pay anybody a bonus. But it was always a competitive team. So he kept people in the seats and kept them interested. And I think there have been leagues. I think there have been owners in the league that have made a, a, a deal to say, you know what? Yeah, maybe every now and again, we get Boomer Esiason and we, we catch uh, lightning in a bottle. But honestly, we could be mediocre to good every year, and it would be more profitable profitable than uh, than getting to the playoffs uh, for us. Yeah, they they figured it out. They figured out the algorithm and uh, anything that can upset that apple cart. I don't know why everyone wouldn't embrace it. It is it is the American way in a lot of ways. And uh, and that's good. That's a good uh, a good sports story to bring up prior to our deep dive all right now let's get into 72 are we ready here we go it's a lot of fun uh like we've said like we've alluded to already 1972 this is part two of a three-part series it is a year first here's some of the firsts we're going to go over today the mvp trifecta some open championship firsts happening ownership swaps an unbelievable story there records and milestones plenty of those political heights a lot of political heights, actually, and a lot of political depths and Olympic <laughs> heights as well. No depths yet. That'll be in part three, uh, unfortunately, for that. Let's start out, indeed, with uh, with May 7th, all right, where this is May through August, folks, and we're going to start in the NBA. May 7th, the Lakers beat the Knicks 4-1 to one to win the championship, and there they are. There's Wilt Chamberlain, who was the MVP of that. That's his only finals MVP, John Pelkey. Which I think would be shocking to people who don't know NBA history. They would have said he was a multiple MVP winner. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is he only won two championships, and he won one in 1967 with the Philadelphia Warriors. So if he didn't get that one, not – there were people that got finals MVPs in the NBA that, that weren't from the winning team, Jerry West being one of them, but that certainly wasn't uh, a, a normal occurrence. So he got it. 
He averaged a 20-20 for this entire series. He was on fire. He was 35. He'd been in the league forever, and he he, he really stepped up. They, they beat them 4-1. to They set the record that year for number of wins, 69, which was a record, 69-13. And uh, in part one, we went over the fact that they had a 33-game winning streak, John, which will never be broken. I, I couldn't so, imagine it would be. No, so thank goodness they finished this off. Uh, Jerry West, Gail Goodrich, Wilt Chamberlain, Jim McMillan, uh, Pat Riley was on that team as well, uh, and that's the you know the beginning of this deep dive part two, May seventh. Now on May twentieth, we're going to stick with basketball. The ABA. We didn't talk about the ABA much. The ABA had a nine season run, and uh, this was basically in the middle of that. And uh, on May 20th, the Indiana Pacers won their second of what would be three. They would go on to win another one the following year. The Indiana Pacers, Johnny, uh, won that. They were the most successful ABA franchise. There were nine seasons for the ABA. They made the playoffs in all of them. They made the finals in five of those seasons and won three. And they had a Hall of Famer, George McGinnis, on that team, who was a rookie this year. You remember George McGinnis. I, oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember when the uh, the ABA folded in Indiana, San Antonio, you see the what were then the New Jersey Nets. Uh, I think, what was it, three or four teams that came over to the NBA when they swallowed up uh, the ABA. But that was a – Dr. J played in the ABA. It was a yep. great – it was a much more wide-open game than the NBA at that time. It really had an AFL feel to it and lasted one year shorter than the AFL – and it was absorbed, though not as many teams made it over as they did in the AFL. No, and Denver made it over. Indiana made it over. New Jersey, like you said, uh, made it over. I think that might have been it. There were the San Antonio. San Antonio. San Antonio. The Oakland Oaks were in there. The Pittsburgh Pipers. There was a Virginia team as well for a while. <laughs> there was a New Orleans team as well. But uh, George McGinnis, Hall of Famer. And uh, there it is, Indiana. So in May, you get a little uh, basketball finals. And, of course, you also get, indeed, the NHL finals. We talked about Bobby Orr, and we talked about the Boston Bruins a lot in part one. Uh, And uh, they went ahead to uh, win their championship, the Stanley Cup finals. They they lost one game in January. They lost one game in February. (laughs) And in the finals, they they beat the Rangers three to nothing to take the title four to two. Uh, and I, I want to talk about this for a bit, Johnny, because Boston actually won the President's Cup. And, and, and usually that's the kiss of death. Kiss of death. For years. Remember, uh, the St. Louis Blues did it for years. They won it and they could never. Yes. And it was it was the kiss. I think my caps won. The, it won yes. Many, a couple of won. times. I maybe think maybe more than once. Yeah, it was. It was the kiss of death. It was you were never going to do that. It's kind of like if you finish teams that finish number one in defense in the NFL. Uh, it's funny because we talk about how defense wins championship, but the team that win that finish number one in defense is usually like a six and 10 team that, uh, was already beaten by halftime. And then the teams just, you know, ran dive plays into the line. The president's cup was the kiss of death and they won it and they won the Stanley cup finals and Bobby Orr who had already won the NHL. Is that, is that that some sort of, okay. First of all, my wife is from New England. Yeah. I know the accent in New England can travel around. Bobby Orr is not one of them. Bobby Orr. Bobby Orr. Hey, Bobby. Uh, hey, Bobby. Hey, Uh-oh. Bobby Orr. 
Uh oh, lighting change. Yeah, that, that, that. What do you think? Is it better? Worse? The lighting uh, went out. I, it's darker, so better. <laughs> if you can see me less, and yep. I know my lighting designer may or may not be watching the show right now. Do you have and, one of those Christmas tree things where it just sort of spins and puts a different light on you every now and again? No, it's a ring light. It's a normal ring light. But uh, you have a she, ring light on? I I did before it went out uh, because uh, Taylor. Remember, Taylor and Neil are living with me, John. Right. And Taylor is one of the most organized, production savvy, entrepreneurial savvy people ever. And um, she's got it set up, and she's dealing with the uh, the technical difficulty right question. now. Got a question. Uh, although her. I do kind of like the way I look a little bit better than I, I did prior. Got a question. Uh, her production design, if she's going, eh, people want to see more of Dad. because <laughs> He questions your production design if you think people want to see more of Dad. <laughs> good call. Very good call. All right. Why don't talk about Bobby Orr, which, speaking of Taylor, Again, husband's still not dad. sure where that accent's from, but it's Joe not Joe Candelora would say it like that. There I am. Look at that. Look at that. I mean, talk about a crack staff, ladies and gentlemen. There you go. Get that orange. There you go. Good stuff. I like it. No, it's good stuff. Uh, people listening to the pod right now are wondering what the heck's going on. It's just, it's just, it's just production. I'm getting my ring light. I'm getting my ring light now out. I feel like I have to use it in some way. So at any rate, he had won, Bobby Orr had won the NHL uh, All-Star MVP. Mm. Following this series, Johnny won the Conn Smythe, which of course is the MVP for the playoffs. And he won the Hart Trophy as That's well. Amazing. So it's the only time in the history of the NHL where players won three MVP trophies in one year he also won the norris which was a one that he won perpetually because he was a great defenseman yes and he uh he led the league in assists he led the league in plus minus and the only reason he didn't lead the league in points is because he had phil esposito on his team (laughs) who was a machine in terms of scoring points and i think led the nhl three or four consecutive years well we brought it up before Jesus saves, but Espo scores on the rebound. That's right. That's right. Uh, that that changed to Gretzky saves, but Jesus slaps in the rebound for bumper stickers when I was a kid. We talked about it before, and it's it's worth saying again. Bobby Orr is one of those guys who redefined the position. Defensemen prior to Bobby Orr were not as offensive minded. No, you're right. He redefined it, John, and I don't think anyone has has been able to match what he has done as a defenseman. Yes, you're right. Defensemen now can score. Right. There's not a problem with that. But what he was able to do while being the defensive player of the year and also leading, and he, and he did lead the league in points some years. Yeah. Uh, but leading in assists, leading in plus minus, just a remarkable. Gretzky before Gretzky. He, I mean, yeah. he, was, he was no doubt the guy, really. He really was. And so no one's ever done that. So that's yet another first where someone has won a MVP trifecta all right so let's let's move on to major league baseball it's may the season's getting going and uh um in may the giants decided to trade and this is fine this is okay but they decided to trade willie mays to the new york mets uh and they basically traded him for handful of magic beans for, for a handful of magic beans they really did uh, let's see if we can get this name. The name is Charlie Williams, who I think won 23 games in his career over, over nine years. The fact that he had nine years is, is remarkable. And $50,000 worth of cash. Horace Stoneham at the time was strapped for cash because, you know, he was a, he was a drinker. And uh, no one came to Candlestick Park. You know, if the Giants, even when the Giants. I need winning, another case of bourbon. 
Get rid of Maze. I'm Horace Stoneham. Uh, Horace Stoneham. S- sir, uh, we, 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 we need you to... Which one's Maze and which one's McCovey? I can't tell them apart. Uh, Mr. Stoneham, we, we, we uh, do need... We do need money to make payroll bring me, next bring week. Me, bring me another bourbon. Mr. Stoneham, you, you you had a great run with the Giants. Perhaps I don't have stop. a lot of the time. I'm going drinking with Ursay and Rosenblum in a couple of minutes. Nice. Oh. Nice foreshadowing there. So that was Willie Mays. And, and three days later, it was May 11th when they <laughs> traded him. Three days later, he hits a home run. and That's that, great. And that beat the San Francisco Giants. That's so great. Good I for love. good for Mays. Because in, in, in truth, I mean, let's let's be honest. Mays was clearly at the end of his career. Oh and, yeah. I mean, he was he was a shadow of what he had been. Uh, and in fact, I remember that there were Saturday morning cartoons with the "Say Hey Kid" as part of like uh, uh, the Hanna Barbera world. I mean, he, he there was either a cartoon that he made appearances in, or they had a cartoon for him. But he was a shadow of his former self. But again. Like all of the greats, Mark, in in that moment when yep. all eyes were on, you know, who watches a game, you know, a regular season May Mets Giants game at that point was like, no oh, one. yeah, okay, you know, uh, and he hits a home run because he, he knew the him. drama. He yep. knew the drama. Exactly. Yep. And he rose to the drama and he made a difference with that. Then he went on to hit 212 and struck out 166 yep. times. Rough year. He was at the end of his career. There's no doubt about that. All right. The real world now invades May 15th. George Wallace is shot. And Remember I know, well. I mean, I know that you were coming online. Do you? Oh, God. Well, Laurel, Maryland. Yeah, my, I was we had a, very good friends and, uh, and yeah. uh, who, who lived in the Laurel, Maryland area. So I remember um, uh, my mom listening to the news reports on the radio when, when Wallace got shot. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember that very, very well. And, of course, we were... Not used to it, but that was a relatively common occurrence in America at that point in time. If you think back just four years earlier, uh, Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy were shot and killed. Yeah. And uh, obviously, uh, you know, nine years before that, JFK right. had that happen to him as well. One Wallace of these things is not like the other. Yep. Sorry. Wallace didn't die. <laughs> Well, any, no, any, I, se- I several mean, reasons why. Several reasons why one of these things isn't like the other. There's no doubt about it. And you can see from the picture, if you are watching on uh, After Further Review Facebook Live and or YouTube a little bit later, you can see the stars and bars behind a grinning pre-assassinated uh, George Wallace. <laughs> and is that... Do you have to die to say it's assassinated, right? It's an assassination I, attempt, I think. I, yeah, I guess, right? yeah, it's an assassination attempt. So pre-gunned uh, pre, down. Pre-AA, pre-AA for George it's, Wallace. Right. There right. he is with the stars and bars. He kind of came around uh, a little bit after all of that. He did. And, he was, and, and you know what, he had, he was a, a, had a lot of populist support. And in 72, he was, uh, he was not going to, you know, he wasn't going to win any election, but he was moving the needle. In 72 before that and uh that that election which for for many reasons in hindsight is more interesting than it was at the time clearly uh interesting to think of what would have happened if george wallace hadn't have been shot at that point in time. i mean he was sort of the ross perot before ross perot in in terms of a third party candidate that did to your point move the needle and he probably you know ross perot never won any states right george wallace i think would won have five states in 1968 right 
and may have done the same thing in 1972. It wouldn't have made a difference in the election, uh, as we will see a little bit later. But uh, I'm sure because it would generally eat into Nixon's support, right. although most Southerners were Democrats at the time, they weren't voting Democrat at the time because no. uh, the policies of the Democrats were uh, – anathema to them so he gets shot it's a major event he leaves the campaign uh and that was may may 15th three days later this is also a world event non-related to sports although this took some athleticism i can't believe this happened i've never heard of this i hadn't heard four, of it either four troopers of the british Air special air service yes and special boat service four air troopers they're parachuted into the ocean line, onto the ocean, not onto the ocean, but onto the ocean liner, Queen Elizabeth II. It's a thousand miles out to sea. <laughs> They're parachuted out onto it because there was a bomb threat and a ransom demand. Turned out to be bogus, but that is unbelievable. Dude, and, man, that's what they yeah. do. Forces, forces, paratroopers. That's what you do, bro. Unbelievable. There's a little cartoon. I've heard of these fly one way and sail the other package deals, but this is ridiculous. People could joke about it because it, it was a bogus threat. But the fact that they did that, the fact that they committed that kind of plan, resources, uh, <laughs> energy, and everything else to fly halfway across the ocean, if not, you know, if not more, to to drop four parachuters in. Uh, that's just, it's just nuts. I've never heard of that before. Para, paratroopers. You, you, you're having trouble with it. Uh, you, you can just call them paratroopers. I can't that's, call them parachuters? Well, parachutists, I believe, is correct. Um, <sighs> All right, paratroopers, so, fine. Like, parachutists, like, fine. Like, They're not like, parachuters. Carol right. Rosenblum. Good uh, job. I'm so happy that we, that we did this. And we're sticking, <laughs> we're sticking with non-sports stories here. All right. We are on May okay. 26th, uh, Brezhnev and uh, Richard Nixon signed the SALT One treaties limiting. Uh, it's an arms control agreement, uh, and it's the first time a, a U.S. president has visited the Soviet Union yeah. since World War Two. Yeah, since what Roosevelt and Yalta, I guess, would yeah. have been the last time that uh, that there was a president uh, there. Yeah, Nixon had, you know, it opened up China. And then he had gone to uh, Russia. You know, Richard Nixon, there's a lot to criticize about Richard Nixon. Yeah. But when it, when it came to world affairs, Richard Nixon was a was was a bright man. And he mm -hmm. had uh, he had some um, well, he had his thumb on uh, on all of that stuff. He he was he said once um, when he when he announced that he wanted to go to China and a lot of his advisors said, you you can't do that. You, you can't. Are you kidding me? And he made the point that because his bona fides from. Uh, back to uh, Alger Hiss and all of that sort of yeah. stuff, because yeah, yeah. he was known as a as an anti-communist guy. I mean, he if you look into his election against Jerry Voorhees and uh, all yeah. of that Cold I mean, War Hawk, Cold War Hawk. He was the one who could do it. And there is Absolutely. some truth to that. There is truth. I to think that. there's a lot. That's why welfare reform, quote unquote, could be signed under a under a Democratic president, which it right. was with Bill Clinton, that the Democrats are all for social programs are all for um you know tax and spend if you're to believe the republicans and for someone like that to then want to reform that system 
There's right. credibility there, just like a Cold War hawk reaching out to communist China. There's credibility there. I, I think there's a lot of truth to that, John. Yep. Actually. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you give you got to give Nixon one. You got to give him credit for that one. All right. We're back to uh, sports and we're into the month of June now. We uh, we've lost May. We're now into June and uh, we're moving on to tennis where Billie Jean King wins her first and only French Open. Not good uh, on the clay. No, not at all. And that that happens a lot. There's a lot of great, great players who may if they're lucky, if they're great players, they get one, maybe two. Uh, I'm not sure McEnroe ever got a French Open. No, I don't truth. think so. And then a guy like Rafael Nadal was always exceptional on, on the clay. Oh, Nadal okay. was exceptional on the clay. Um, but but and, there are all the, I think maybe it was Sampras or there's, there are some folks that aren't, that they just, they just don't have the same game on clay. Right. And Billie Jean King was one of them, but she did, uh, as a result of this, she had her career grand slam. She beat Yvonne Goolagong back in the day, and that was a uh, uh, very, very famous rivalry back in that day. All right, we're going to go back to world events, Johnny. And this is a big right. one. This is a big one. This is the Vietnam War. The uh, the Associated Press photographer, uh, mm-hmm. Nick Oot, takes his – and this is a this is a Pulitzer Prize-winning photograph – uh, Fan Thi Kim uh, Fu running down the road after being burned, oh, by the way, by napalm. And I'll yeah. tell you, Johnny, this is actually a redemptive story. I don't know if you followed her a little bit, but she was able to get out of there. She was able to uh, actually, Viet- actually the uh, government of Vietnam that was communist used her as a sort of a propaganda machine for a while. So she was able to make a, a, a decent living. She was actually was able to go to Cuba to be educated in the University of Havana there. Uh, and at one point in time, visiting Canada with her husband and they asked for asylum in Canada when they were over there. And um, and they got out and she's a, a speaker now. She's she's, I think, 56, 57, 58 years old. And um, she has gotten past this and as don henley said you know it's it's about forgiveness and that's what it was for her if she could for you know she could she had to deal with the pain she had to deal with the burns she's had major surgeries um throughout her life but she was able to forgive what happened and if you look at some of the color photos of that the napalm burning in the background it's just uh just horrific no it's yeah. terrible it's it's terrible and i mean that you know um one of the things that had to be said about the vietnam war is for all of the protests against it um the government did not censor what was coming from there i mean they they obviously you couldn't give away military positions and stuff but things like this uh were it was not tightly controlled as something like the gulf war when we saw uh here it was it's it, it was a pretty open journalistic situation in vietnam and in the end that really pushed uh pushed us in the uh, in the direction of getting out of there far too late but at least getting out so nine days later I don't know if you've heard about this, but uh, there was a break-in uh, at the Watergate. Uh, these are not bright guys. No, they are not <laughs> bright guys, John. Uh, these five burglars broke into the Democratic National Committee. And, uh, well, the reason they did this on June 17th, they had already broken in once, right, in May, once before, and uh, installed bugging devices, which didn't work, hence another break-in. So they did this, and a few days after the break-in, Nixon arranged to provide hundreds of thousands of dollars in hush money. How much do you think it'll take to shut I, them up? I just think, 
How much do you think it'll take to shut him up? We can get whatever you Seriously, need. I mean, I can have him shot. I mean, it is. McCord knows he was in it, Dallas in 63. That's exactly it. Yeah. You know, there was two of the, who was it? Frank Sturgis and, yeah. and some of these uh, Cuban exiles who were part of this break. And I mean, it's, it's literally hilarious that they had already done it successfully. They had stolen documents. They had taken pictures of documents, but the right. bugging devices didn't quite work. And right. so they went back again. And, uh, and I, Go I back mean, to Radio Shack and get the good ones. I told you not to get the damned ones that were on sale. Jesus. <laughs> no, I mean, that's hilarious. It really is hilarious. I mean, it really, and, you know, it just, Go ahead. All the hilariousness of it. Had Nixon come out and said, watch, I'm going to mistake. If he just tried to cover it up, in hindsight, would have found out more. Nixon would have been, would have been, well, you know what the problem was? It was an election year and he was concerned. But by June of that election year, I don't think there was really anything to be concerned I'm about. Concerned about what people think? Come on. Yeah. Paranoid. Paranoid, no. Mark. That's true. That's absolutely true. So that's what happened on June 17th. So uh, six days later. <laughs> Six by days way, later. NBA, by the way, I want to point out, can you go back to that? Is it at all possible? Because I meant to do this sports tie-in. Um, the head of the Democratic National Committee at that time is future NBA commissioner, Lawrence O'Brien. Right. Larry O'Brien. And, and there it is, Lawrence F. O'Brien. You can't really see it in the picture because it's uh, it's the angle isn't right. But, yeah, he was the chairman of the Democratic National Committee. So here future is uh, NBA commissioner. Yep. There it is. So you tied it back to sports. I appreciate that, Johnny, because these are – there's like four or five of these stories that are non-sports related in a row, including this one. On June 23rd, Nixon and Haldeman are talking, and it just happens to be taped. And on that taped conversation, Nixon, uh, well, talks about talks to Haldeman, banding about the idea of using the CIA to obstruct the FBI's investigation into the Watergate break-ins. I've told you, 72 is a year first. This is the first time I believe this has ever happened. I think you're probably right. And there that's where the, you know the 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 famous gap in the tapes. All right, here's what I think we should do. I'm going to and 17 and a half minutes later, damn it, Pat's making flan. I hate foreign desserts. So that's all. It's just bizarre. No, it's that's outstanding. <laughs> that is outstanding. That 18 and a half minute gap or whatever it was is uh is classic and it was like okay, okay. HR. What's it? What was his first name, by the way? Do, I don't, you have that, don't you? I don't know. His um, first name. I believe Heinrich. <laughs> what's what's R stand for? Um, Reichstag. Reichstag. Heinrich Reichstag. Yeah, he's an interesting guy. Uh, late in his uh, later in his life, he he kind of you know he was just really upfront about what had happened no, there. Those guys were. He was. Well, you talk about uh, a cult of personality. Those guys were tied to Nixon. And yeah. Power. Yeah, luckily that hasn't happened since. <laughs> so, uh, at any rate, he's he's on tape, is essentially obstructing justice. Tell and the FBI to get out of this thing. We don't want to bring it all up. 
they'll bring up Dallas and the Treaty of Ghent. And nobody really knew what Nixon was talking about. But right. But at that time, you know, I'm sure there were a lot of connections. We don't want to get into the whole Cuban thing on the Bay of Pigs thing. He said, get, that me, get right. Get me BB Rebozo on the phone. I need to have somebody killed who lived who lived into his 80s. Like he lived 85. A lot of these guys lived a long, long time. Well, you know, they, they had their blood changed out with the poor. They, they did. Sloan, you know, Hugh Sloan and those guys, they all lived in the, well into their 90s. And uh, John Dean is is well into his 80s now, I believe, too. But that it's, it's the first time, John, even if even if a president prior had talked to his top advisor and said, let's sick the CIA on the FBI to muddle up an investigation that can hurt us politically. It's the first time it was taped. Let's put it that way right. for 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 a multiple set of levels that evident you know that happening on june 23rd well i just think uh, and again mark is normally politicians i mean there is a level of certainly you know politician is 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 a blood sport to a certain extent i mean there there are you know people do things that are of questionable morality but this one was just so nakedly ambitious that and and nixon was so comfortable with the power that he that he was wielding at that point in time that he just would just came out and and said it literally said mislead yeah. them lie to them as opposed to you know have a talk with uh, patrick gray and and tell him you know uh let's 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 slow walk this a little bit because we, you know we don't want to blah 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 in effect and he again had he not been as uh as uh comfortable with that mantle of power and feeling just the ultimate power that that Nixon felt, um, he probably would have proceeded a little less uh, recklessly. So on that same day, John, and this is what makes Nixon remarkable. You mentioned his foreign policy achievements, but he also had a significant amount of domestic policy achievements as well. EPA and, and uh, EPA, including this one coming up the same day he colludes with H.R. Haldeman, sicking the CIA on the FBI to impede their investigation. He signs Title IX the same day. If that doesn't represent, which, of course, uh, banned sex discrimination right. uh, in, in sports and college sports, wasn't enforced, of course, until 20 years later under Bill Clinton. But he signed a massive piece of legislation right. the very same day right. he's colluding with his top advisor to have Here's what CIA. we're going to do. We're going to put L. Patrick Gray's balls in a vice, and then we're going to get the broads on our side. All right, get it done. Flan, I, mean, I hate flan. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's mm -hmm. unbelievable. All right, so we're still in June. It's the day after the Watergate break-in. It's now the third major championship uh, in golf. Jack Nicklaus has won the first two, uh, and no, no one did that again until Tiger Woods, oh, by the way, uh, 28 years later, uh, or maybe even 29 years later. So here comes the, uh, uh, and I, oh, I'm sorry, I'm wrong. See, let's okay. rewind. What this the hell actually, are you doing? This is, so, sorry, sorry, Dick Nixon. Uh, this is the second championship. Right. Jack yeah. Nicholas has already won one. I buried the lead a little bit. Yeah. He goes ahead and he wins the US, U.S. Open. So there are two in a row now. There's the SI article that I – the SI uh, cover yeah. that I remember very well, John. I don't know if you remember this or not. I don't remember that. I remember a lot of SI covers because I started – I probably didn't start getting Sports Illustrated until 73, 74, a little after this. So I don't remember this. But I certainly do remember, Jack, was that Pebble Beach? Uh, that that he won. Uh, I, I, 
I, I, I'm 100 percent sure. Off the top of my, I will tell you this: whatever oh course God. it was, and it could very well be Pebble Beach, but whatever course it was, and this is another first for 1972. Uh, he was the first player to win the U.S. Amateur and the U.S. Open on the same golf course. So he won an amateur title on that same course and went ahead in 1972, won a U.S. Open. Let's see if we can tell by the uh, – Pebble Beach. Yeah, it was Pebble Beach. I just beautiful. looked it up. Yeah, beautiful. that's what it looks All like. Right, so good old Pebble thing. Beach, which is yep. a phenomenal course. One of the best One to watch a game. Uh, there's no doubt about it. And, of course, in June, it's a beautiful time out there in California in Monterey, Carmel. And uh, he won the U.S. Open second major in a, in a row in 1972 and became the first player – Yet another first to win a, a, an amateur championship and a U.S. Open championship on the same course. Now, uh, the year before that, Lee Trevino, who was really coming on this time, Lee Trevino in the early 70s was making a huge mark. I think he ended up with five majors in his career, if I'm yep. not mistaken. Uh, but he was the defending championship. He had been, in, he'd been hospitalized in Texas for a long, several days with bronchitis and pneumonia. He was released on the Tuesday before the tournament and finished fourth. That's how hot Lee Trevino was, and we're going to re- we're going to revisit that in just a, a bit. Now we're back to world events, Johnny, mm. and um, kind of misguided political decisions okay. weren't uh, you know weren't the necessarily just the purview of the right. Because Jane Fonda, literally inexplicably, had multiple photographs taken with her on an anti-aircraft gun in in Hanoi with the North Vietnamese. And it's it's presumably that anti-aircraft gun shot down American soldiers. Well, it was there for that purpose. Whether it did or not doesn't matter. And, and you know, I, I, I do think that uh, Jane Fonda's efforts for peace um, were came from the right place. And certainly I think was what a lot of people were thinking. But this is a decision that I, you know, and you've seen interviews with Jane Fonda since and her mea culpa on this that she regrets. Right. There's no and, doubt about it. Yeah, it's uh, but it, it's 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 a bad look. It's a bad look. It, I mean, it's one of the worst possible looks yeah. to go to the enemy's camp, right? And their major weapon against uh, the, you know, your your home country's yeah. efforts. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. What's behind it? Sure, altruistic. But I mean, how many times have we said that, right? About right. liberals with the the bet the, the the road to hell is paved with good intentions, John Pelkey. Yeah. You should know that more than anyone. <laughs> wow. I'm not sure to take that. I don't know if I should take that as a compliment or as a you know, because it, it in some way people are going, Hey, John must have a lot of good intentions, and we know that isn't true. Uh, so what Mark's really saying is you probably won't go to hell because you have literally no good intentions in anything. I, I agree. You, you probably will sneak sneak out of there somehow because you haven't had many good intentions your entire life. No. All right. So that's July uh, that she does this throughout July. Now we're back to July 7th and uh, and Billie Jean King. She, she didn't even play in the Australian Open, but she played in the French, won the French. And won Wimbledon as well. She's at the height of her powers. Yeah. She, she ended up winning, I believe, five Wimbledons. 
uh, and she won one French, a few, a few Australians, and a few U.S. Opens. But she beat Yvonne Goulagong on this one as well. And uh, 72 was a big, big year for her. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, and that was she, that was the peak. For, that was really, at, yeah. to your point, was really at her peak. And and there will be a first involving Billie Jean King, but we'll be in 1972 Part 3. Right. So just, just to be okay and equal and everything else, we wanted to tell you who won the men's Wimbledon that year. And Wimbledon's a big deal, obviously. I know so, who it is. Yep. There it is, Stan Smith. Stan Smith. I have Adidas Stan Smith tennis shoes. They're my they're my favorite shoes. But the great Stan Smith. It's his only Wimbledon. It will be uh, the first Wimbledon and his only beats Elon Astasi. Now, now you remember oh. Elon Astasi? Absolutely. Talk about There's drama. That guy great picture of Astasi flipping somebody off. I remember when I was a, when I was a kid, and uh, he was one of the brats of tennis. You know that he kind of paved the way a little for the McEnroes of the world, the Jimmy Connors of oh, the world. Big time, big time. He was. He, and his name's it's Nastasi, and so it, I mean, it just nasty Nastasi. It just played to that great, great player though, Ilya Nastasi. Yeah, and there's no doubt about it. But boy, oh boy, he what he set the tone. He did. Yeah. If it wasn't for Ilya Nastasi, is that the pronunciation? Ilya Nastasi. Yeah. Uh, then he uh, because I've been corrected multiple times now for parachutists. Ilya Nastasi. Paratrooper. You still don't know the word paratrooper. Parachutists. No, it's a paratrooper, Mark. Just paratrooper. Well, I understand that. Paratroopers as well. Parachutists. <laughs> I know. I'm never going to get this. I'm never going to get this. At any rate. Like something uh, have, we could just something you and I would John never McEnroe. do. Something you and I would never do. Jump out oh of a Oh, my plane. gosh. Are you kidding? A thousand. First of all, just flying over the Atlantic Ocean. A yeah. thousand miles and, be, and be flying, I'm sure, low in the clouds with no visibility. Oh. 18 inches off the off the watermark. That's a flew in 18 inches off all the water. All kinds of turbulence. No idea what you're about to run into. Are you kidding? Much now less get out. jumping out. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Much less that. Are you kidding me? Okay, boys. Doors open. Jump out. I'm sorry. Jump out. <laughs> Whoa. Whoa. Check out the bomb threat and the ransom demands. Right. How many people on could be on ship that ship below? Anyway? Here's what we do. We send other ships to pick up survivors. Okay? And I'll stay in the, in the nice plane. Bring me another right. Bloody Mary. We're still in July. We're back to world events. Uh, as the Democratic National Convention, George McGovern is selected via... You know, it's it's sealed. The fate is sealed. The die is cast right. for this election at this point in time. You see Jesse Jackson there. You see uh, guy behind him having a butt. Yeah, like, hey, smoke. smoke inside. It was no big okay. deal. You had to. It, you look at these big crowd pictures, Johnny. Yeah. And you look at TV shows when uh, the lead characters are going into crowded places. Do you ever think to your? Does it ever come to mind? Even though these are filmed well before our current situation with the pandemic. Yeah. Does ever, anything ever come to mind? Gosh, why are they, gosh, there's no masks. God, they're, they're really close. I mean, that's like sometimes the, every now and then it, it's, we're so steeped in this. Yeah. I can see that. I just, you know, I, 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 I understand, you know, time and space. So it doesn't really, not really sure how. You know, no, you don't have Jesus any. Said, look at 1972. They weren't wearing masks. I mean, look that's at why Jesse we're Jackson. still not working. And look at the guy just smoking, you know, what's that all about? And so there's Thomas Eagleton as well. This was, uh, ah, this was, I think the worst. If I'm not mistaken, I think this it, worst it will be beat, the, beat down ever. Yeah, I the think worst beat down ever. We are finally back to sports. I know we did a little tennis there, but we're finally back to sports. And in July, July 13th, one of the most inexplicable things happened 
ever, really, in the world of sports. And that is the L.A. Rams, uh, who were owned at the time by Robert Ursay. You see him on the right. Yep. And uh, he, by the way, that's I don't know what Robert Ursay is saying there, but I'm going to go with shut the fuck up. Yeah, there's no doubt about you it. Know, look at him. Robert Ursay, not not a great guy. He was he was about a four pints of scotch in right there. God knows. And Baltimore Colts owner at the time, Carol Rosenblum, they swapped yeah. their team. This has never happened before, and I don't think it's ever happened since. This is a major first in 1972. Like, at this point, dozens of firsts that we've already brought up, and we're only in July. Yeah. So Ursay, the guy who's saying fuck you to whomever it is because he's just yeah. not a – not a happy guy. Well, I can kind tell you this POS. much. Can I tell you this much? That picture comes from uh, uh, late in the Baltimore run, 13 and 2. Those are Baltimore uh, stations. I grew up in D.C. and I know what Maryland, the Baltimore stations were. And I'm pretty sure because that looks familiar. Uh, I am pretty sure that this is during the period bef just before he moved the Colts to Indianapolis. Um, and he is, uh, he was, there, there were rumors about that. He was being questioned about the moving of the franchise because not only Indianapolis wasn't the only city that was in the mix for that. So I'm pretty sure that's hearsay a number of years later. Um, just not happy that he's being questioned like many men of power, Mark didn't want to be yeah, and, and questioned, uh, legitimately as well. So this guy, hearsay buys the Rams that same day. Right. He buys the Rams that same day. The The previous owner had died, and they sold it to Robert Ursay, who immediately traded with uh, Carol Rosenblum and picked up the Baltimore Colts. Rosenblum took the Rams. Now, Rosenblum had been the owner of the Colts since their inception in 1953. Right. They'd won three NFL championships. One of those net championships, they lost the Super Bowl, but it was a, it was at the time an NFL championship. They won sure was, three of them. Yep. yep. And they won a Super Bowl as well. And we're a great, great team. As a matter of fact, the very last year that Rosenblum owned the team, they won 10 games. Okay. The, then he then he gets the Rams, who had gone through a, a little bit of a drought. They hadn't been to the playoffs in about three years. They had a nice little run in the six, late 60s, but they couldn't get past Dallas and especially the Green Bay Packers. Right. Uh, but George they, Allen was their head coach. And as we talked about, he didn't really win playoff games. I mean, they were, no. they were a decent team, but yeah, good, yeah. So once Allen left and went to the Redskins, the Rams in 70, 71, and 72, because remember, this was uh, right before the 72, uh, right before the 72 season. Um, and I, I, I think it, it happened a little, a little bit after that. But at any rate, he ended up winning seven straight NFC West titles. So Rosenblum has the Colts. Wins three NFL titles, one Super Bowl, gets the Rams, wins seven consecutive NFC titles. Ursay, on the other hand, remember, Baltimore was one of the most successful franchises in the NFL. They'd just won 10 games. They'd been to the yeah. AFC Championship the year before. Yeah, they were very good. Yeah. So he clammed really hard. Yeah. He clammed. He went from 10 wins under Rosenblum. AFC Championship, they went. They won five the next year, four the next year, two the next year. Yep. They get lucky with Burt Jones. They go to the playoffs three consecutive years. Don't win a playoff game, mind you. And then they go for another three straight years, four straight years, where they win five, four, three. They basically 
in the next six years, averaged four wins a year. They were a pathetic franchise. And then Robert Ursay moved. Interesting story. He about, was a horrible owner. Yeah, he was. Interesting story about Ursay, too, because I believe when he took over that team, uh, John Sandusky was the head coach of the Colts at that time, I believe. And Howard Schnellenberger actually ends up coaching the team, the future Miami uh uh, head coach, among others, Louisville as well. Um, and Ursay uh, fired Schnellenberger like in the middle of a game. Um, and apparently it came down to this. And this is interesting because this will put you a little on Ursay's side. It was because prior to that, Marty Domres, who had been the quarterback for the Colts, get out of Columbia, uh, Marty Domres. And I remember him really, really well. He took over once Unitas could play no longer. And I believe in 72, Unitas ends up getting traded, or maybe in 73, traded to the San Diego Chargers for a final season. But uh, Ursay was in favor of putting Burt Jones in. And Howard Schnellenberger, apparently, when Ursay came down, uh, came to talk to him about it. Uh, Schnellenberger was incredibly dismissive and apparently maybe somewhat abusive to the owner because he felt like, you know, this is my purview. You own the team. And uh, and Ursay ended up that was one of the reasons that Ursay fired him. And he uh, elevated the general manager. And then a couple of years later, they got Ted March Broda in as a head coach, who was an excellent head coach, Mark. Uh, and they had some good teams in Baltimore. But uh yeah, the the Ursay curse uh, took a very good football team that was I at, at one point I'm not sure if they were the number one but number two seed in the AFC and they still could never ever win. Ghost to the post against Oakland being the most famous loss in a playoff game for those. That players. was in 1977. Uh, they won. They got the playoffs in '76 as well, at 11 and three. I think that's the year Bird Jones won the MVP. One of the greats. And and they were 10 and four in '75. Didn't win any playoff games. Ursi got there in 73, hi, uh, hired Schnellenberger, Sandusky and McCaffrey. Uh, it was McCafferty who had won the Super Bowl, by the way, Don right. McCaffrey. But he was gone by 72, right? And it wasn't Sandusky's. In the middle of 72, and Sandusky yeah. is hired. And then following that in 73, uh, Schnellenberger. So they go four, they, they win five and 72, oh, by the way. Okay. Then four and two under Schnellenberger. And Joe Thomas. That's they, right. Joe Thomas was a coach and a GM for them. And famously ended up going to the 49ers and, you know, almost ruining that franchise. Actually, we should do a tip of the hat to Joe Thomas because he got him so far down that they, but actually, you know what? No, no tip of the hat to Joe Thomas because he traded away the first round picks. He traded away, I think, two first round picks when they were a horrible team and could have really used them. For O.J. Simpson. Right. Who was who, well, who was the Willie Mays of this discussion. Who was the Willie Mays he was so of this discussion. Yeah. There is no doubt about that. Just so the, the fact that they did this, the fact they swapped teams. It's still the this. most bizarre thing ever. And I never could. I, I did some reading up on this, Mark, and I never could get the uh, and, and probably just missed it. But why they wanted that. I mean, maybe Rosenblum. I'm assuming resided on the West Coast and wanted a team that was closer. Um, you know, Ursay seemed I, more like an East Coast guy. And I believe yeah, he, I, to your I point, he bought the team off of Dan Reeves, who had passed away, not the Dan Reeves, who ends up being the coach of the uh, the, the Denver Broncos and the Atlanta Falcons. But uh, never could get to the bottom of why they made the switch. Maybe it had something to do with Georgia Frontieri. Mm-hmm who ended up being Carol Rosenblum's wife and inherited a vast amount of his fortune upon his untimely death. And it was untimely. Had him drowned, didn't she? I believe so. A couple of people called up Nixon. Uh, uh, Georgia, what do you need? How about that Title IX thing? 
Hi, Dick. Need a couple people who don't mind murdering Carol. All right, I'll get on the phone. Know a couple of Cubans. So, exactly. <laughs> exactly. No, that's the case. It was, it was a mafia hit. There's no doubt about it. And it was a favor for Georgia Frontieri because she was a big contributor to Nixon's campaign. Now, in 1979, which I believe is what has happened, I'm not sure what what would benefit Nixon except just paying off debts because I'm sure he was getting a lot of threats from, uh, yeah, from, from debtors that, owed, you know, people that he owed, owed. I can't afford San Clemente. Somebody drowned Carol Rosenblum. Georgia's going to give me a couple of mil. Hello, senor. What are you doing? I'm swimming in the ocean. What do you think? Hello. I am so sorry. <laughs> We're gonna Sad get news today out of the Pacific Ocean. We're going to get uh, all kinds of tweets and hate for culturally, culturally appropriating the Cubans, Johnny. Whatever. <laughs> all right. We're back to sports. We're, we're, we're still on sports, but that was a bizarre sports story. July 15th. Here we go. Jack Nicholas has now won. He's won the first two uh, majors of the year, and he's uh, competing in the British Open, and he loses by one stroke to none other than Lee Trevino, who is the really the rival yeah. for Jack Nicholas at this point in time. One stroke. Jack was six strokes behind Johnny uh, coming into that final round and went on a tear. Went on a tear. And actually, with three shots to go, had the had, you know, had a co-lead with that, and ended up going one over par over the last three holes and losing the tournament. So, well, and uh, it was that back-to-back claret jugs for uh, Trevino? Am I, if I'm not if, if I'm not wrong on that, I think uh, I know he won two, and I think he did win them back-to-back. I think seventy-one and seventy-two. He Trevino was great well, everywhere did. except uh, Augusta. He, he was the play. first one, uh, Johnny, to defend that title mm. since Arnold Palmer in 1962. So, yeah, yeah. He, he had one at the year before. He had won the U.S. Open the year before. These, these were good years for Lee Trevino, 71, Absolutely. 72, 73. Big, big years. All right. We are uh, 10 days later now. More sports. Thank goodness. It's Major League Baseball's All-Star Game. It's Atlanta. The NL beats uh, the AL 4-3. Joe Morgan is the MVP. And so here we go. There's Joe Morgan. And uh, there's a few of the players that are on that team. I want to say this before we get into who was on that team, Johnny. But uh, this was a year that uh, this was part of an era, I should say, actually, that um, was very dominant for the National League. In 1971, they had lost. But it was at, it was after I believe nine consecutive games that they had won, or eight consecutive games. All right, so eight consecutive games the NL had won in 1971. The AL then wins after this game in '72. They go on. Uh, they started a streak of eleven consecutive. So between 1963 and 1982. The National League won 19 out of 20 All-Star games. You remember this. This is right in your pocket of following baseball. And every year, it seemed, didn't it, that the National League was going to win? Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, year in and year out, uh, they they were going to win it. And uh, I I remember vividly in 1983 when that all came apart. Um, And and that came to uh, an ignominious end. Uh, yes. I believe you, you like Comis- to bring that up a lot. Comiskey Park, I believe that was, and Atlee Hamaker, the pitcher for the uh, for the San Francisco Giants. Yes, 
uh, who hasn't been seen since inning seven of that game, just he disappeared. Hasn't. No, he, he, just, he gave him a grand slam to Fred Lynn, which uh, blew the game open. And uh, horrible, horrible. But the dom- that's incredible dominance. Incredible dominance in an all-star game, which is inexplicable in an all-star game. It is. All right. So this is what's noteworthy, however, about that particular year. The starters for the AL and the NL, we're talking 18 players, right? Are mm-hmm. starting, correct? Mm-hmm. Everyone, yeah. everyone gets that. There were there's nine on both, even if one's not pitching. Uh, at that point in time, I'm not sure what they had with the DH to tell you the truth. Uh, and I don't think even think it was official in the uh, in the American League yet. But there were 18 players starting in an all-star game. Twelve of those, Johnny, 12 <laughs> were future Hall of Famers. Yep. Mays, Aaron, Joe Morgan, Yaz, Reggie Jackson, Jim Palmer, Rod Carew, Johnny Bench, what? Bob yeah. Gibson, Brooks right. Robinson, Joe Torre went in as a manager, but still, Willie Stargell. Okay, so there's 12 and there's 12 starters right. in the Hall of Fame. A couple of guys on the bench, too. 11. <laughs> 11. Oh, by the way, that also made the Hall. Gaylord Perry. Catfish Hunter. Nolan Ryan, Tom Seeger, Fergie Jenkins, Catfish Hunter, and Steve Carlton. I'm sorry. What? Yeah, yeah I know. Lou Brock, Roberto Clemente, Roberto Clemente, Catfish Hunter, Ron Santo, and Billy Williams. It's 23. There were 23 Hall of Famers selected for that All-Star game. And it is tied with a few other years, believe it or not. Wow. And, and I believe there is one year shortly after the all shortly after the Hall of Fame actually was uh enacted or erected or decided upon made up uh whatever the word is 1939 i believe is yeah. the first class yes and first and uh a couple years after that i think there were 28 uh in there but interesting because it's a think, major major record do you think part of that is because guys stayed with their teams for a much longer period of time and they built up these resumes that were more um consistent uh I don't know. I, you, you look for reasons why. Um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I, when you when you listen to those names, Johnny, there wasn't listen- player movement. So if a guy was well protected in a batting order, then you know, it's just you, you wonder why because it really does seem that that's almost impossible number wise. But you think about it, and I'm not sure why it is. I just, frankly, my thought is that they're just better players uh, because <laughs> that idea of being protected. I mean. That can turn on you, too. All of a sudden, you have a bad team. I mean, Bill, poor Billy Williams. You know, all of a sudden, now the Cubs are, are nothing. I mean, Steve Carlton was on a team that won 59 games. <laughs> I, I don't I don't know if it's because of lack of player movement. But those names that I just mentioned, I yeah. mean, are they're not just Hall of Famers. They're all-timer. iconic all-timers. Yeah. Agreed. It's it's just remarkable. I mean, it's it's a remarkable collection of talent. And and it's interesting, too, because if you freeze the standings on that All-Star game, late July, July 25th, every division leader at the time ended up making the playoffs. And that was division. the statistic that even, even I found as remarkable as the one with the All-Stars. The fact that from the All-Star break forward, it, it didn't change. It did not. not. one team. It did not one team. And there were a couple of battles because uh, I remember doing this, the the, uh, the amazing A's 
of that period. There were a couple of battles there that could have gone uh, to, to other teams. But the fact that all of those teams held on with leads at the all-star break, to me, that's just another remarkable statistic. And I think when you when you come down to uh, the era of divisions, I I would love to look up and see how often that that had happened because I can't imagine I, that would have happened a lot. And I should have done that as part of this deep dive, yeah, but I did not. I should have done that. Detroit was the uh, the closest race, and uh, they ended up winning by half a game because they played more games yeah. than the Red Sox uh, because of the strike that we talked about in 1972 Part 1. All right, Billy so, Martin, the manager of those uh, that's Detroit right. Tigers. That's yeah. right. You look at his career. Talk about a guy, and you've, you've brought this up, John. If you want a guy to turn around your team, not He's necessarily sustain your team, but to turn around your team, he did it with the Rangers, did it with the Tigers, did it with the A's later. Yep. About eight years later, uh, at this point in time, and, he's the Buck uh, Showalter with rings. with the Twins. He's the yeah, Buck he Showalter did. with rings because those two guys in baseball in my lifetime, the two managers that I knew when they would go to a team, that team is going to get better and they're going to get better quickly. You know, Billy only won in New York, and that had as much to do with you know that they'd open up the pocketbook and they brought all those great players in. But he could take a team and make them good almost overnight. And Buck Showalter had that about him in uh, over the last thirty years as much as any any manager. All right, now we're in August, and there's a reason why they say the dog days of August, John. There's <laughs> there's there's a lot of interesting things that happen, but it's all sort of the setup for the the final part in a way. There's there's one thing we can kind of get into, but in a lot of ways, it's events. There's some records, there's some milestones, but there's nothing really deep diveable too much. We talk about August. baseball. None of the none of the leaders changed. No, there was no nothing happened in August to change things up or anything. Exactly. It yeah. was the dog days and there's not a lot happening. However, there's a few things we can mention. Thomas Eagleton and this is uh very sad, but it's the first time some uh, a vice president has resigned uh his position right there. They left the he left the campaign right uh because it was uh revealed that he had been treated for mental illness. Now, I don't, right. you know, I as much as I'd love to assume that we've gone past that, that we've treated, we treat mental illness like physical illness so that if you have bronchitis or if you have asthma or if you have a you know proclivity toward a physical disease and you have to have a treated for crying out loud, like anyone would treated a physical disease, uh, that it's the same thing as a mental disease. But I'm telling you, John, 48 years later. Not much changed. Not much. No, no, Thomas Eagle. Pull yourself again. up by your bootstraps. What's wrong with you? Thomas Get out Eagle, there. <laughs> Thomas Eagle get again, the vice presidential uh, candidate along with uh, McGovern. And yeah, it came out that he had, he had had some level of treatment. Uh, I think at the time, it was uh, shock treatment was uh, was mentioned whether or not he actually had the shock treatment. That was, you know, that was one of those one flew over the cuckoo's nest things that, you know, boy, that if that was mentioned, you were you were nuts. And golly, if you just look at the uh, the other two candidates running for the other party, one of them was batshit crazy. And uh, he didn't uh, he didn't have to leave the ticket. And I'm not talking about Spiro Agnew, frankly. Um, yeah, it's it it it, it was a. It, it was, it's a sad thing. Thomas Eagleton, that's what he's known for. And it's unfortunate because yeah, he was did. a he was a good dude, actually. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you, John, it, it also. Whatever chance McGovern had at that point, which was pretty slim, was thrown into the dustbin because Absolutely. for him to throw that guy, throw his running mate under the bus because of something like that, which. 
And didn't According he bring in Muskie? George McGovern's bona fide. Sorry. Sorry, we got no, only... he brought in Sergeant Shriver. He oh, brought in Sergeant Shriver. I think the Muskie thing was, was that year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah Muskie yeah. Musky happened. We didn't get into that whole uh, Musk, the Muskie known in New Hampshire. But, uh, yeah, he brought in Sergeant Shriver. He's a Kennedy. Right, so he was married to the Kennedys. <laughs> naked. That's a, that's a naked, uh, uh, ridiculous. I think do, he may yeah. have been in charge of the Peace Corps. At he some was point in indeed. Time. And uh, you know, you bring in a you, you bring in a familiar party stalwart or someone that's you know on the outskirts of the party stalwarts that aren't around anymore. Oh, by the way, right. And uh, you know, it just it just made people think that McGovern wasn't going to be a good leader if he can't handle this. If he if he fumbles this kind of thing, yeah, what is he going to do as a president of the United States? And that sealed his fate. And it was a bit unfair. It was a bit unfair. And again, we mentioned Larry O'Brien was the head of the Democratic National Committee, so I'm sure he had no small part in getting Sergeant Shriver in there to to run for him. And Shriver, I think, probably like everybody, realized that McGovern was not going to win this thing. Um, that was pretty apparent. Apparently, everybody but Nixon knew that Nixon was going to destroy. Well, I think, I think by this point in August and then by August 21st, when the Republican National uh, Convention happened in the same city, oh, by the way, that the Democratic National Convention happened, uh, by then it was a done deal. Richard Nixon and Spiro Agnew were nominated for a second term. It was just a fait accompli about what would happen. All right, so that's world events. Let's, let's backtrack just a bit uh, for Major League Baseball in August, where Hank Aaron... Uh, hits his uh, what does he do? He hits his 660th and 661st home run, which actually breaks the record of Babe Ruth for a team. Right, uh, essentially uh, uh, breaks the MLB record for number of homers with one team. He'd been with the Braves his entire career. We've been traded. He'll be traded a little bit later uh, for a couple of years to the Milwaukee Brewers where he started his career in Milwaukee as a member of the Braves. But uh, 660 uh, was the amount of home runs that Babe Ruth hit for the Yankees, and then Aaron hit 661. All right, so we keep going in August. The PGA happens. Now, It's the drama has ended. Jack Nicholas is not in line to win a major. He finished one stroke behind in the British Open, and I think that sort of uh, you know hurt him a little bit because in the PGA, Gary Player went ahead and won. Uh, won by a couple strokes, and Jack Nicholas finished 13th in that. Uh, was about, I think seven over par. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Gary Player was two over par. That was a PGA that was uh, not an easy course. Yeah. And so, so Gary Player does it. You know, and I don't even know why I mentioned this. It's not ri- to me. It's not even a story in terms of 1972 and firsts. Well, I think but I just felt like I had to, you know, I had well, to let everyone know about the PGA for crying out. It's not all about first though. It's the year 72. Some of it's just sports. And I think it is interesting because they were the three most successful golfers yeah. at that time. And they took all the majors that year. There was no, there were no, there were no real upsets that year, uh, frankly, because it, it, while Trevino never had any luck at Augusta, just course was not set up for him. Those greens were not set up for his game. Um, Players certainly did. And they were all good at the U.S. Opens, and they all had success at, at the British and, and the PGA, I believe. Uh, Trevino won a couple of those as well, if, if maybe just one. But uh, they were the three best golfers in the game. Nobody snuck up on anybody that year, which is a little interesting. So August 7th, we're in the PGA was, uh, I think, a, basically a day before that. I'm not sure. Yeah, August 6th. So now August 7th, we talked about Hall of Fame selections. This is when they are inducted uh, in, into the Hall of Fame. 
It is uh, these five gentlemen plus three others who had passed away. It was San- you see you see Yogi Bear there, Sandy Koufax, uh, Lefty Gomez, early win. Uh, Josh Gibson had passed away. Will Harridge had passed away. Ross Youngs had passed away. And if you look at that closely, let's take a look at Lefty Go- Lefty Gomez and early win. They're the ones on the far right of that picture. Mm-hmm. And this is the, this is the second year that blacks are able to be selected in the Hall of Fame, and they're not happy about it. They are not. Look at their faces. Yeah. They are not. There's yeah. Josh Gibson. There's Ross Youngs, and there's Will Harridge, uh, uh, pictured as well, who have passed away. But look how unhappy Lefty Gomez and Early Win are. I want to guess it's because they're that they close are to Bowie Kuhn. I'm going to go with there's Bowie Kuhn standing there, and that's more offensive to them than even, you know, that they have to be. Yeah, but look at look at Sandy Koufax just smiling away, and Yogi Bear is happy as well. It's like, yeah. you know, I, I, well, it's, it's the Blacks, John. It's, 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 it's the Blacks. I'm sure. Early win, and Lefty Gomez did not care for the Blacks. There's Josh Gibson who had passed away. Will Harridge, oh, by the way, he was the AL president. Hmm. From 1931 to 1959? Wow. I mean, that 28 years is a long time, number Hopefully. one. But that era, 31 yeah. to 59, I mean, everything. The world changed two times. Yeah. Unbelievable. Uh, and uh, and there, of course, is Ross Young's. No one knows about Ross Young's. He died at 30 from a kidney disease that they called Bright's disease at the time. He was a 322 hitter. I believe it's still called Bright's disease, Mark. I don't think they've changed the name. They haven't. I don't, not to my not to my knowledge. All right, because they they didn't know, they 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 bloodlet in terms of how they dealt with it when it was named. So I I, I figured if, if the treatments changed, maybe they changed the name of the disease as well. Uh, but he, he hit three twenty two, played for only ten years, and there was controversy there because all of his buddies. You know, he was on the New York Giants. It was that John McGraw. If you remember our Giants sure, Dodgers uh, deep dive. And they they won four consecutive pennants. Remember back then there were no playoffs or anything. They just right. immediately World Series. Two of those they won uh, the World Series. But it was four consecutive. He was a great player. People loved him. They thought he was the best, most exciting player at the time. He did hit a career three twenty two, pretty good. But only played ten years. And all of his buddies from his New York Giants team were on the Veterans Committee that year. And uh, so people thought it was a kind of a phony little cronyism going on that this guy somehow made the Hall of Fame in the veterans committee. So yeah, whatever. It's Ross baseball. Young's. It's the baseball hall of fame. People are always bitching and moaning about everything there. Always. Including always. us. We bitch and moan about stuff there too. So. Yes. Keeping in baseball, August 17th, Steve Carlton wins his 15th consecutive game. He goes on for 27, John. This is, this is Steve Carlton, 1972. They won 59. This is highly noteworthy. I, I, if you're really watching baseball at the time, and I was a fan and I was following it, but mm-hmm. you don't follow Steve Carlton no. because it's the Phillies. They're right. lame. They're horrible. They well, won- you get one game. You get one game on television. Probably you get the Sunday, you know, uh, or Saturday afternoon game. There was a little Monday night baseball starting to creep in, though it might have even been later than '72. You get a lot of games, and nobody's putting the Phillies on national television at that point in time. You're just not going to no. see them. No, nobody's doing that. So here we are. Uh, we're in middle of August. We get to the, the end of August and the Summer Olympics from Munich uh, start to happen. But before they happen, and, and this really sort of leads us to the end of part two for 1972, uh, all of the initial events 
in the Summer Olympics. But before it got started, four days, as a matter of fact, before it got started, uh, Rhodesia is expelled uh, from the Olympic Games for its racist policies. And they, and they clearly were a racist country. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was apartheid on steroids in a lot of ways. Yep. Uh, we've talked about Avery Brundage. Uh, Horrible got, human being. Yes, he had argued for their inclusion. Of course he, he was shocked. His kind of country. Yes. Said the political pressures in the sport are becoming intolerable. Right. Said the guy who didn't allow Jewish athletes in yeah. uh, in uh, Berlin in 36 said, oh, this politics is coming in and it's ruining everything. Shut the hell up, Avery Brundage. You were a Nazi yourself. No, there's no doubt about it. And they were expelled, but the actual reason they were able to get expelled and the reason the committee was able to say yes and you can't overturn this or you can't argue against this, Mr. Avery Brundage, is for a technicality in terms of registrations. Uh, (laughs) But the reason why there was an issue was the National Olympic Committees of Africa, basically a lot of African nations who were part of a a, a group, a united group of African nations, uh, they had all threatened to pull out of the games Mm -hmm. uh, until they were barred from competing. They just said it was an illegal regime, which it was in a lot of right. ways. It was this illegal regime, but it was a complicated thing because they were they were brought back to the fold two Olympics later in 1980 under President uh, Robert Mugabe, and he was now President Rhodesia became Zimbabwe. But this guy was – Robert Mugabe, oh, yeah, he did a lot of good thousands, things. Thousands of people he murdered. Massacred his own citizens. Mm-hmm encouraged land grabs from people encouraged yeah, totally it. corrupt totally corrupt unbelievable and yet he was welcomed with open arms because he was at least he wasn't a racist but <laughs> he was a racist if you think about it but at least he wasn't a whitey who was racist against uh you know the blacks right he he was a uh major tribal racist when it comes to certain tribes that were threatening his power and he had them exterminated. It was just ridiculous. It's a very complicated issue. Nothing well, and, ever and, as simple as it seems. And again, the whole thing with with me and Brundage and this whole thing is is that Brundage came out and he, you know, he he fought to have Rhodesia stay in the Olympic thing. And and you know, here the thing for Brundage too is the more successful the Olympics were, the more money Brundage made. Let's just you follow the money in all respects, and particularly the Olympic movement. But that that idea that his argument was, you know, politics should creep into this, and he had allowed politics to creep into it again. Again and again and again, he was yeah. one of the guys responsible for really kind of ruining Jesse Owens after the Olympics. He didn't allow. Um, uh, oh God, what's the famous? Uh, uh, well, the two, Glick, the, uh, uh, Marty Glick to yeah, run the two Jewish uh, athletes, two in, Jewish in, athletes in, in the in, relay, the final event for uh, 1936. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. He, and he, 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 so he gave in to the politics. It was yeah, just it was just weren't his politics, right? That's right. why he says this just weren't his politics. Yeah, yeah he, you was, know, he, was, he was certainly saddened by George Wallace being shot. I'll tell you that. Yes, that's no where his vote it. was going. So the Olympics start uh, actually four days later, as we mentioned, four days later, the uh, Munich Olympics start. And they start, um, you know, with a uh, lot of drama happening. There's the U.S. team. There's the Soviet team. Everyone. Ex- yeah. yeah in, in basketball, everyone ex- is expecting them to meet in the finals. And they. You know, no one disappoints. The United States on the 27th beats Czechoslovakia 66-35. USSR beats Senegal. And over the next three games, uh, the U.S. beats Australia, Cuba, and Brazil by an average score of 70-52. to And the USSR beats Senegal, or beats West Virginia, Italy, 
and Poland. Uh, and West Virginia. I don't think West Virginia wasn't. West Germany. Did yeah, I say West said, Virginia? You did. <laughs> Got them Didn't on realize my mind. They replaced they, Rhodesia. They played last night. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they did. Bob Bob Huggins. I watched there. that game last night, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Did they end up winning uh, WVU? Uh, they did, yeah. Yeah, I like I like I like WVU. My daughter graduated from there. I like Bob Huggins. Bob Huggins yelled at me once. I, you know, the thing is, Bob Huggins he yells all the time. He's a good 30, 40 pounds overweight. Sad, like four heart attacks. Seventeen, I thought it was okay. And uh, he's it's still going. Yep. You gotta love it. You know what I mean? You just gotta love it. You he has a little that- stool. He he has a little stool that he brings out to sit on when he's in the coach's <laughs> area, which I think is pretty funny. But he screamed at me in an Advocare Invitational. Um, because there had been some, there was some screw up with the clock or something. And he came over and often they think that the guy on the public address announcer is like the, the scorer. And I'm not obviously. And he's just like yelling at me and I'm sitting there and he's just like spitting on me and yelling at me and not wearing a mask. I couldn't believe yeah, it. See, exactly. Many years ago. Bring it um, about. Bring it and, about. uh, and very quietly after he'd finished, I was like, I'm the PA announcer coach. You want to yell at them down there? And he, he felt bad. And later, you know, he said, sorry about that, well, but uh, great coach. There's no doubt about it. Should no be said, doubt. speaking of coaches, that 72 Olympic team. And we'll get into that later when, uh, in Part the three. next, uh, coached by Hank Iba. And, uh, that was, um, that was probably a mistake to bring Hank Iba in because he was one of the greats of all time of uh, basketball coaches, but was probably about seven to eight years past his prime at that point in time. And a number of the athletes who would have played um, chose not to go in 72 as well. Bill Walton among them choosing not to go. Doug Collins, probably the most famous member of that team. Well, it's interesting because that you know they start out by the end of August. Both teams are four zero, USSR and the USA. Uh, the USA's average margin of victory is eighteen points, which is highly significant. But they did uh, kind of get a little bit of a test from Brazil, only one by seven. USSR, on the other hand, their four games in August, and we'll get into what happened in September uh, against uh, Senegal, Italy, Poland, and West Virginia and or Germany, depending on. Uh, how many scotches you've had right uh, that was 89 to 61 that's 27 points so there's already a little bit of evidence saying the ussr might be a bit of a, a stronger team at any rate they they both get off to the starts everyone expects everyone expects them to the, to make it to the finals and uh, that's what indeed happens we'll get into that in a bit but uh, on august 28th through the 31st uh, olga corbett makes her debut and there she is she wins the team event on october 28th that's the team all around event yeah she becomes a media darling she becomes an absolute star within three days she wins the balance beam and the floor exercise gold medal so she wins three and this is yet another first for 1972 john she's the first and they called the corbett flip she was the first to do a backwards flip on the balance beam, yeah, which of course you can imagine wowed everyone. It's yep. like, what the heck? Yeah. So that's pretty neat. And and in the same three day period, Mark Spitz gets uh, four gold medals between August twenty eighth and thirty first. The very first one is with his four by one hundred uh, freestyle team, and you see them right there. Four by one hundred freestyle freestyle relay team gets the first one. Mark Spitz then goes on to beat the gold medal uh, in uh, three more events over the next three three days. And every one of these with Mark Spitz 
is a world record. So these are all firsts. There's a lot of firsts happening at the end of August in, in, uh, in the summer Olympics at Munich. It's setting us up for even more major firsts, traumatic first, tragic firsts, obviously, but it's amazing what has happened thus far in the first eight months in 1972, John, we're, we're talking 12, 15, 16 firsts. And a lot of those are firsts and only, and I'm not sure how many years share that. Yeah. Yeah. I, it, it would be hard. It would, you'd be hard pressed. You'd have to dive deep because there are some, there are some firsts that you wouldn't expect to have been first times. I mentioned that Will Chamberlain, particularly, I, I thought, yeah. When he won with the Philadelphia Warriors, I thought he would clearly would have been the MVP in that game. Um, to your point, first he only, only. Yep, he only, he only won those two. But yeah, lots lots of firsts. Some of them coming up are pretty uh, horrific firsts. Uh, I also should mention, as I did before, that an alma graduate of my alma mater high school, which at that time was Robert E. Lee High School, is now John L. Lewis High School. Uh, Melissa Belote won uh, three medals in the 72 Munich Olympics and then went on to swim for Arizona State and coach out there. So uh, just a uh, you know, call out a little shout out to Melissa below. She's she and John Engelberger, who played uh, uh, defensive tackle, I believe, maybe offensive. They played for your 49ers, among other teams, uh, probably the two most famous athletes to come out of uh, out of my high school. So there you go. Melissa below, ladies and gentlemen, probably why I remember the 72 Olympics as much as I did, because, you know, they they had parades for her in town and everything. So. Well, we've uh, talked about the MVP trifecta, Open Championships. Jack Nicholas, of course, won on the same course, Pebble Beach, that he won the U.S. Open Amateur as well. First guy to ever do that. Ownership swaps. We talked about Ursay and Rosenblum. That's still the craziest story of all the crazy stories. Unbelievable. Records and milestones. We've talked about Hall of Famers at the All-Star Game. Uh, Obviously, Hank Aaron, uh, among other things, political heights. uh, You know, freaking... Richard Nixon had gone to China already. In part two, he goes to the Soviet Union. First time since the Science since Title World War II. Science Title Line gets the SALT agreement done, political depths. We've talked about Watergate and everything he'd done, as well as Jane Fonda, by the way, reached some political depths. Yeah, and good. Olympic heights. We haven't seen Olympic depths yet. A lot of heights. Mark, uh, Mark Spitz, by the end of August, had already won four. Uh, old Corbett had already become the media darling and won three. 1972, Johnny. Yeah, jumping back to that ownership swap, the interesting thing is, and, and we didn't talk about it on the show, but I, I I don't know if you watched the 30 for 30 about Al Davis versus... Uh, no, not yet. Uh, okay, well, when you have a chance, watch it. But it, it, why I bring it up is because, you know, uh, one of the things with uh, Pete Rozelle and Al Davis moving his team was, you know, well, all right, you're going to have to, we, we got to bring it to the ownership meetings and we vote on it and blah, 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 blah. You, you look at this and like two owners swapping their teams. You, you think that... Pete would have gotten in the middle of that and said, okay, did, was there a poker game involved here? Were you guys long? You know, was it a drinking contest? But uh, you didn't hear anything about that. They just basically said, ah, yeah, we're going to, we're going to uh, swap teams. Still, it's just bizarre. It's just, I want to, I want to get to the bottom. It, of it more. is bizarre. Know. You know, you know, and I'd like to get to the bottom of that too. And I have a theory. All right. As we close our show, I have a theory. Pete Rozelle did so many things for the national football league. And was a visionary, you would agree, a visionary. Oh, absolutely. He, he figured out things that could happen that would benefit the NFL for Profit decades sharing. to come. Profit sharing at the top yes, of the exactly, list. exactly, that no one had ever done. And they fought. So George Preston Marshall, George Hallis, they fought that stuff. all kinds of 
They did. They why should they give any of their revenue to the to the smaller market teams? That was expansion and that makes as well. Sense. It's George Preston Marshall fought expansion. It's, it's exactly it. It's exactly right. So, but he was able somehow as a thir- he came in at a th- as thirty three year old. He was able somehow as a mid thirties executive. This this snot nosed kid, it, for lack of a better cliche. And he was able to convince these old school owners, these entrenched owners, that this was good for the NFL. And, he, and, and not only did he convince them, but it was. He was forward thinking. He was visionary. He had a lot going on. And he probably thought to himself, in the 70s, uh, TV is, is really coming on. Hollywood is really coming. I need a bona fide guarantee winner in Los Angeles. For the 1970s, I just invented Monday Night Football a couple years ago, right. and I need to see the Rams regularly on there to uh, to enhance this. And it's Hollywood, and it's everything else. What's going to guarantee the Rams being in the mix for the next for, for the for the entire decade? It's Carol Rosenblum. I think Pete Rosell. Roselle orchestrated the whole thing. Uh, that's certainly a possibility. Uh, and Ro- Roselle was just, uh, you know, we're just talking about the right man at the right time. And I watched the documentary on the 1951 San Francisco University of San Francisco Dons. I believe it was 51, which was the integrated team that they had that uh, should have been a national champion. And they were invited, I believe, to go to the Orange Bowl, but they or Sugar Bowl, one of the two. Um, and weren't, we were supposed to not bring their, uh, their players with them, their, um, there are African-American players and uh, the guys on the team basically were like, well, no, that's, we're not going to do that. And uh, it was a great stance in the early fifties. Pete Rosell was actually like the sports information director and it was called yeah. something different than yeah, 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 the Rams at that time for, for Sam, USF. He oh, was that's there, right. Prior Sam, to that. And then he moved into uh, front office for the Rams. He was a public relations guy. So you're right, Mark, the, the merging of television and Pete Rosell and then getting those owners who at that time were a lot like Major League Baseball. They had individual um, deals with different television. To, you know, George Preston Marshall, uh, Washington, the Redskins owner at the time, he had like the whole South. That team was the furthest South. And they were Dixie's team. Before they had hail to the Redskins, they played Dixie at every game. And uh, he had that series of television stations. I know it's the nation's capital. What the I, hell? I, I know. I know. And, you know, didn't integrate his team until Bobby Kennedy forced him to do it in the 60s. But he didn't want expansion. George Hallis didn't want expansion. Chicago Bears owned that. I mean, he drove the Cardinals out of Chicago, for God's sake. Um, so Roselle, yeah, he... Uh, to, to your point, he might have orchestrated it, and he, if he did, he had uh, public relations reasons to do that. And uh, it's hard to argue, but you do look forward and you wonder if still the lingering animosity between Al Davis and, uh, and, and Pete Rosell, uh, Al Davis, of course, coming from the AFL, and upset that the AFL merged with the NFL and stayed the NFL. He had a problem with that. He said, name it Major League Football and have an AFC and an NFC. Um, so you wonder if that carried on. Now, moving a, a team from one city to another is a different thing than swapping franchises. But honestly, Mark, look, put yourself, you know, at, at the commissioner of any sport, and a couple of guys come to you and go, hey, we're down in the lobby. I love crabs. And you can't have a crab in Los Angeles. So we're swapping teams. 
And you'd probably go, yeah, we, we're, we're going to talk about this a little, but apparently not. You could just do that sort of thing. Like to see that happen today. Like to see Jerry Jones <laughs> and that Johnson and Johnson and guys switch up the Cowboys and the Jets. Oh my God. Woody Johnson and Jerry Jones. Can you imagine it. Woody Johnson and Jerry Jones go out for tequila shots one night? And uh, I tell you what, I was one. I was one to do New York. Ah, always want, always wanted to build up the Jets in New York. And and the Jets fans are going, hell yeah, let's go twenty nine. Sure. let's go uh, twenty five years without a championship. Man, we've been we've been doing it anyway. So what's the difference? Yeah, it's it, yeah, it's been you know fifty one years at this point in time. So <laughs> yes. fifty two years. All right, so that does it. We uh, next Wednesday we're gonna have part three of nineteen seventy two. It's pretty stuff. fun. But I think you're right, John. I think the the most favorite story I had today was the ownership swap and how inexplicable that was. Most bizarre. How, most bizarre. And how interesting it was with Carol Rosenblum and, and the success that continued for him and Robert Ursay, who was one of the clammiest owners in the history of time. Uh, and his son, Jim, had troubles too, but was obviously more successful as an owner. So we're going to do that next Wednesday. There may be some other changes coming up here for After Further Review. This is more than an hour and a half. But that's how packed full 1972 is. We had to talk about Watergate, for crying out loud. We had to talk about Jane Fonda. We had to talk about George Wallace. We had to talk about these things, people. We didn't even touch on Uh, BRM. Yeah, next last win in Formula One. And and none of that. None of the things that I wanted to talk about. But it's Reva Ridge, the first horse I remember winning the Kentucky Derby. None of that guy came up, did it? No. So uh, uh, British racing... Motors, (laughs) Motors, <laughs> We're British racing membership. No, uh, in, British, in fact, you know, it, it is. I, I, I'm going to make sure is I right. got it right. Uh, British, well, I want to make sure I got it right. Racing mojitos, you know, British, British racing motors. You were right the first time. Yeah, BRM. Right. They're one of the most famous teams. Started right after the war in 46. And they haven't won 45, since. 46. And they, well, then they disbanded as a team after 1977, but they won their last major race. They won the rain-soaked Monaco Grand Prix in 1972. So there you go. Just one there it is. Out there. there it is. There's, there's a AJ Foyt happened. wins the Daytona 500 in 72. You, know, you, you, you don't like motorsports. No, I, I glossed over that. I have yeah, to. I, know you didn't. I, didn't, I didn't talk about the Indianapolis 500 either at the end of May, which would have been this episode here. So yeah, sure I would. apologize to all, my, all of our racing fans out there, which... How many do we have, John? How many races? Not one. Not a not single one. one. Just so me. There you go. Only me. There it is. I'm apologizing, John Pelkey, which I've done quite a bit in my life, by the way. Mm-hmm. And not enough to his liking, obviously. All right. For John Pelkey, <laughs> Jeff Taylor, I'm Mark Furr. You've been listening to 1972 Part 2. Well, I'll do Part 3 next Wednesday. More announcements coming up. Thanks for tuning in to After Further Review. Have a good night. Stay safe and sane, people. <laughs>